You know, logically, you would think that it would happen every uh, seven years uh, since there's 365 days in a year, right? 52 weeks times seven days a week equals 364 days. So we've got that one extra day, and because of that, Christmas Eve or any other fixed holiday moves forward in the calendar by one day every year. So this year it's on Sunday, next year on Monday, 2019 on Tuesday, and you would think logically then just every seventh year. However, of course, we have to throw in leap year every fourth year that throws things off. And uh, uh, because of that, the next Christmas Eve on a Sunday will actually be six years uh, from now in, in, uh, in uh, 2023. And, and then the next one after that will be 11 years uh, down the road from there, 2034. And then the next one, I'm not sure when because I think I'm going to be retired by then. I'm not going to have to worry about it. This really doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. I just found that kind of interesting. thought I'd pass that on. The, the sermon is actually about something that only happened once in history. So if you're the type of person that likes to mark special days on the calendar, you could go back through all the recorded history of the world and you would only be able to put one mark for this day. Uh, And we don't even really know which day it is, right? I mean, we can narrow it down to sometime between uh, January 1st and December 31st. Uh, Or, well, actually, since, you know, it's a Jewish uh, thing, we we, we might say we could narrow it down uh, between the 1st of Nisan and the 29th of Adar. But either way you you look at it, uh, whatever day of the year it was on, it happened once and it will not ever be repeated. However, there's also never been an event that has impacted the world like this single event. It happened one time, and when it happened, it changed everything. Which, by the way, is the theme of the candlelight service tonight. Everything changed. So if you can make it, I think that's going to be a great thing. For us this morning, we're going to focus on something a little bit different. Grab your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. Since it's Christmas Eve, I'm sure you all figured out that one event that we are talking about is the birth of Christ. Both Matthew and Luke, uh, in their biographies of uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, record His birth. But we're just going to look at a couple of verses from Matthew and focus on one main thought in verses 22 and 23. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 says this, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, with translated means, God with us. Father God, we just thank you so much for the fellowship we've been able to enjoy this morning, the the time of singing together, of lifting our hearts and our voices in praise to you, uh, of being able to celebrate... um, this wondrous gift of Christ. Now, Father, as we look into your word, we we ask that you this morning would be our teacher, that you would encourage and build up our hearts, that you would challenge us, and that we could grow in our faith and our walk with you. God, we, we ask that this morning you would meet each one of us so that we would be able to say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 22 uh, begins with that phrase, 
Now, all this took place, which, of course, begs the obvious question, all of what? And if you want to figure out all all of what, you have to go back to verse 18, where the story begins, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So the the all this uh, of verse 22 is the Christmas story. And it starts off with, you know, a, a starry-eyed young couple in love engaged to be married. Or, you know, at least that's the way we like to look at it in our Americanized version of the events, right? Uh, uh, the, the reality uh, may have been significantly different than that. You've got to remember that this was the age and the culture of arranged marriages, so, I mean, it is possible that uh, Mary and Joseph knew each other, you know, that they were like childhood friends and had grown up together and had fallen madly and deeply in love and, and were now just excitedly waiting for that day when they could be married. But it's actually much more probable that they barely knew each other, that they had had only very limited interaction with each other prior to this and and that they really wouldn't even get to know each other until after the wedding. See, see it's, it's most likely that the parents uh, got together and decided, hey, I think our kids would make a good match. Uh, let's, uh, let's hammer out the details. Let's make, uh, let's make the arrangements. Uh, a couple of goats, I think, is worth a, a good price here. And, and uh, we'll set a date and tell the kids. That's, that's likely how it worked out. And in many of these cases, the, the bride and groom uh, might never have even met prior to the engagement. Uh, however, you know, with, with Nazareth being a somewhat small town, it, it's, it's likely that Mary and Joseph at least knew about each other uh, before this. Uh, all of that would have been the normal way things would have happened. But of course, as you guys know, the Christmas story is anything but normal. According to Luke's gospel, at some point during this engagement period, Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel who gave her some astounding news when he said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And that uh, announcement was shocking to Mary because, I mean, she had scored fairly well in her high school biology class and she knew she wasn't having a baby because she was a virgin. But when she pressed the angel about this news, he informed her that this pregnancy was not going to come about in the normal way. In fact, he said, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This was to be a supernatural conception. So now, getting back to Matthew, verse 18 says, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Um, We need to understand from this verse that Mary knew that this child was by the power of the Holy Spirit. This account was written after the fact, and as Matthew's putting it in, they all knew at that point 
that it was by the Holy Spirit. But apparently, at this time, nobody else knew or at least believed that that was the case. I mean, she may have tried to tell her parents, probably, we don't know, we, we have no idea what went on between her and her parents. She might have even tried to get word to Joseph about this, but that would have been difficult because of the cultural rules at that time. Once a couple was officially engaged, they had very little to no contact with each other until the wedding. So as far as the rest of the world was concerned, all anybody could see was that the wedding had not yet taken place, but Mary was definitely showing the signs of being pregnant. And somehow, word of this got back to Joseph. And based on Joseph's reaction, we know that either he didn't believe Mary if she had tried to tell him about this pregnancy, or, and and this is the most likely scenario, that he was as shocked as anybody else to find out that Mary was pregnant. And Joseph had two main reactions that we can see from verse 19. It says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, you you might have noticed the first thing this verse does is it actually calls Joseph Mary's husband. Uh, In that culture, as soon as the engagement was made official by the parents, that couple was considered legally married at that point, even though they couldn't have contact with each other or come together until the actual day of the wedding ceremony. Okay, but they were considered legally married at that. And so... uh, 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 his, his two reactions then, Joseph, in that position was, number one, he was going to divorce her. That's what the phrase, send her away, means. So the text says that he was a, a righteous man. And, and no devout, upright, religious Jewish man would marry a girl who had been sexually active. As near as Joseph could tell, Mary had been unfaithful to him, and they hadn't even been together yet. And since they were legally considered married at that point, the only way to call off the wedding was to legally divorce her. But number two, the other reaction was compassion. It says he didn't want to disgrace her, so he was going to do it secretly. You see, normally in a situation like that, uh, in order for the man to save faith, he would have made a great big public spectacle and show out of it. He would have dragged Mary out in front of, uh, of, the, of the city gates and the elders, the, the officials of the city in front of everybody so they could have seen her condition and what it was. And then he would have swore off anything to do with her. He would have said, I didn't touch her and I don't want to have anything to do with her. And, and now the city officials could have officially nullified the marriage. And in that way, Joseph would have maintained his good name and his good standing within the community and Mary would be shunned. But he didn't want to do that. Either Joseph was a a grace-filled, compassionate man in general or, or maybe he really did have some feelings for Mary. He didn't want to shame her. 
even though from his point of view, she had broken his heart. And this is where God once again intervened. Look at verses 20 and 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph did exactly that. He followed the angel's command, which now brings us back around to our starting point, right? That is the all of this that is contained in verse 22, the virgin birth. It had been prophesied of old by Isaiah, and now it was coming to pass. And in coming to pass, this passage tells us this is what it would mean according to verse 23, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, in, in, in the Jewish culture, it, it was very common uh, practice to give your children a, a name that would remind you and remind them of some theological truth about God. Uh, names were given to, to highlight who God was or what He did. Uh, just for some examples, Daniel means God is my judge. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me. Doesn't matter anybody else's assessment. It is God who is going to judge me. Or Zechariah means uh, the Lord is renowned. Every time you would say the name Zechariah, you would remember that the greatness of God is really great. That that's what the name means. Or Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Any Jewish boy with that name could never write his name down or hear it called without being reminded that his only hope for all of eternity is God. God is my salvation. Emmanuel means God with us. He is our God. Spiritually, His presence is guaranteed with His people. Uh, Just like God had sworn to Joshua, remember back uh, when Joshua was getting ready to enter into the promised land and said, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God with us. His spiritual presence is promised with us. But God meant something more than that in this passage in Matthew. This is not just a promise of God's spiritual presence to always be with us. This is a declaration that God was physically coming into the world. God is not some aloof and distant God who got the earth started and then just kind of turned his back on it and let it go however it was going to go. He was going to be here, interact, and be available. But it means even more than that. More than just his physical presence on earth. See, he would be born as a human baby with all the same physical traits and limitations and frailties as us. God with us means that He experienced the same things we do. Because He came as a man, born as a baby, grown into adulthood, He has gone through what we go through physically and emotionally in this life. He knows 
what it's like to be cold and hungry or to be hot and worn out and weary. I mean, he's experienced those everyday problems and irritations that we do, like like grit being blown into your eyes as, as you're walking down a dry, dusty road. That's what it means, God with us. Because of his birth, we know that Jesus was fully human. He's God, but he is fully human with a body just like ours. But you know, for some reason, we don't think of him having the same problems with his body like we do with ours. We, we just have a hard time picturing that. Things like twisting your ankle on uneven ground or you know, biting his cheek while he's chewing on a hunk of dried out old fish or, 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 or tripping, falling on the ground, smacking his head. It, it's, almost, it's almost like we can't imagine something bad like that happening to Jesus, as, as if God kept him protected, right, in, in some uh, uh, bubble wrap cocoon uh, so that nothing uh, bad would happen to his body. But part of what God with us means is that he lived in a body like ours and experienced the same things we do. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God kept Jesus from going through those same physical hardships and problems and mishaps that we do, everything from headaches to to accidents. And in fact, there's plenty of support in the Bible to tell us that He did. I mean, as, as you read through the Gospels, you'll find for a fact that Jesus got tired, got hungry, he got thirsty. You, you'll, you'll see where he felt and experienced both physical and emotional pain, where he's got physically exhausted, worn out. All of those things are described for us in, in the New Testament. And those examples are an indication that Jesus experienced all the normal things in a body that we would experience in a body. Jesus worked as a carpenter. It would have been very normal after an incredibly hard day of work for him to have sore, aching muscles. As a carpenter, it was common to get splinters in your hand or to drop something heavy on your foot. God, as God in heaven, Jesus would have never gone through any of that. But as God with us, it means He can identify with everything you feel and experience. Hebrews 2.18 tells us, For since He Himself suffered, or since He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Have, have you ever noticed how often temptation hits you uh, when you're in pain? you know, either physical or emotional pain. Well, according to this verse, Jesus suffered. That's what a verse says, right? He, he suffered. Suffering means pain. God with us means that He is with us in that pain and that hurt. He can identify with you because He has gone through it. The birth of Christ in a stable and being laid in a manger, I mean, that's just the beginning, Right? He, he had to grow up. What do, 
you know, just the other day, uh, uh, a woman was here with her little two-year-old toddler with a big knob on the head. What happened? Fell into the coffee table. That's what toddlers do, right? You ever picture Jesus falling, a little bit older, running, tripping, scraping his knee? We, we don't know anything about how he grew up, but we know that he grew up like every other kid. The Bible tells us he was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Joseph is never mentioned at that time. So the logical assumption is that he died prior, sometime prior to Jesus beginning his public ministry. Joseph raised Jesus as his own son. He held him. He loved on him. He trained him. He taught him. He guided him. Jesus knew the pain of losing his earthly father. God with us. I mean, he knows your pain when you lose someone close to you. And if you're familiar with the Bible story, you know that Jesus suffered in ways that most of us never will. And maybe there are people in here who have felt the stab and pain of, uh, of being betrayed by a very close friend. Or, or maybe you know what it feels like to be totally misunderstood by your own family. I mean, Jesus' family came and, and was going to take him away because they thought he was crazy. You, you can read about that in, in the Gospels. Perhaps there are some in here who have been publicly humiliated by being accused of crimes that they did not commit. Or maybe you've suffered intense physical pain, such as Jesus did when he was beaten by fists with his eyes blindfolded or lashed and scourged by a cruel Roman whip. I mean, no matter how intense your physical pain or your emotional hurt, God with us. He, he identifies with us. He knows what it feels like. But none of us knows the pain of the cross. And by that, I'm not just talking the physical pain of having nails driven through your hands and your, your feet and, 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 and your life draining away through loss of blood and suffocation and the agony that that would be. But, but we need to understand on that cross, the sins of the entire world were set upon Him and He paid the penalty for Him. There was an intense spiritual pain that none of us will ever know. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him and Jesus bore it all on our behalf. We can only imagine the horrific pain of that. And that leads me to one further thought. You see, not only is God with us, not only can He identify with you, with your hurts, with your pain, not only does He know what you have gone through, God is not only with us, but God is for us. He came to earth as a baby for us. In announcing the birth of Christ, the angels said, for today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. Jesus left the glories and the perfection of heaven, taking on the frailties and the weaknesses of human flesh for us. He spent three years teaching and training so that we might know the the love and the grace and the justice and the mercy of God. Standing before Pilate, Jesus said, For this I have been born and for this I came into the world to testify of the truth. You know, in this, in this broken world, there are many competing claims and philosophies when it comes to truth. God with us and God for us shows us the truth so that we might have confidence in that. But ultimately, God proved that He is for us by dying on the cross for our sins and providing salvation and forgiveness for us. Jesus was under no obligation to have to do that. And it would cost him dearly to do it. But he chose to for us. And because of that incredible truth, the Apostle Paul asked what I think is a rather stunning question in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? You see, that's written as a a rhetorical question, the obvious answer being nobody or or, or nothing. And and yeah, I know on the surface, there are a great many people and a number of things that might seem to come against us and seem to stand against us. But the point of this verse is that ultimately in God's scheme, none of them can stand because God is for us. So what are the practical implications of that? Well, the next verse goes on. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Since God is with us and God is for us, can we not count on him to meet our needs in this life? And the answer is yes. Therefore, What do I have to fear in this life? I mean, think about that. The next time you are faced with something that that challenges you, that, that, that is tempted to bring about fear or worry in your life, try this. Try reminding yourself of the fact that God is with me and God is for me. So how does that impact this issue? which is trying to frighten me, which is attempting to bring me into a state of worry. You see, when when you celebrate Christmas tomorrow, you're, you're not just rejoicing over the fact that Jesus was born. You are celebrating the truth that God is with us. He identifies with you in every hurt and pain and struggle in your life. And God is for you. The power of God is for you. That's the true gift of Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we are so thankful 
that God is with us, God is for us. Father, we, we are so tempted to, to think we're on our own when we're facing something difficult, something scary, something hard, something hurtful. But God, you've faced all those things in Jesus. You can identify with us in every situation. And you are for us. So God, help us to hold that truth in our hearts as we celebrate tonight, tomorrow, and every day as we head into another year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.